Let us turn once more to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As we continue to grow in our familiarity with this chapter, continue to mine the riches from each of its phrases, all of the ideas in this chapter. So let's read the whole chapter once again. And we find our text in the middle of verse 4. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Once again, our text is found in the middle of verse 4. Charity envieth not. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, some things are more fully understood when contrasted with their opposites. And so it is with God-given Christian love. 1 Corinthians 13 is defining love for us by showing us love in action. And the chapter began with A very positive description of love, some of love's most prominent facial features, namely long-suffering and kindness. Charity suffereth long, is kind. But now, beginning in the second half of verse 4 and continuing through verse 6, love is further defined by what it is not. In fact, from this point here at our text to the end of verse 6, we come across eight statements of what love is not. Eight love is nots. And there is a dual purpose for these love is nots statements. One purpose is to clarify and shed light on what precisely love is positively by showing us the great contrast of what it is not. And the second of this dual purpose is to impress upon us the reality that the default setting, 
the inclination, the proneness of our fallen human nature is precisely the opposite of love. Think of the Ten Commandments and how the majority of them are framed in the negative. Thou shalt not. And the reason is not that God is unconcerned with the positive. But the reason the Ten Commandments are framed in the negative is that drives home to us what we are prone to by nature. We are prone to kill our neighbor. We are prone to theft. Thus the importance of the thou shalt not. And the same idea can be found here. As we go through these eight statements of what love is not, we see that very quickly, very readily, very naturally, we think and act in ways that are contrary to love. And so leading the train of these eight statements of what love is not, is the statement now of our text, charity envieth not. And a way to think about these eight things, these eight things that love is not, is to think about them as love blockers. Perhaps you can make an illustration in your minds thinking of a sport that you really enjoy watching, whether it be football or basketball. There are certain players who are blockers. That is, they work to block the opposing player from doing what that player is trying to do. Envy and the rest of these things in verses 4-6 through are love blockers. They stand in the way of love expressing itself and being fruitful the way God calls us to love. Love blockers. And the first of these love blockers is envy. Where envy puts down its roots, love gets choked out. Where envy flourishes, love is smothered. And love's fruits begin to wither. Envy is a sterilizer of the soil of the soul. And thus, When a person allows that envy to fester in their hearts, it wreaks havoc on one's whole life. The opposite of love, which as the Apostle pointed out at the end of chapter 12 is the more excellent way, as he pointed out at the beginning of this chapter, love is what makes life fruitful. Love is what makes all of the other spiritual gifts that God gives to His people useful. Envy is one of the things that blocks that love from expressing itself. So God's word comes to us in order to truly furnish us unto a life lived in the more excellent way. And thus part of that more excellent way and part of our calling is the mortification of envy. Getting rid of this love blocker. That we may, according to God's will, love him. Love our neighbor as ourselves. So let's enter into the instruction of this phrase of verse 4. Our theme is love is not envious. Love is not envious. We're first going to look at the character of this envy which is opposed to love. Then we'll look at the deadliness of envy. And finally we will consider the remedy to envy. Envy is in character similar to its cousin, covetousness. 
Envy is a sinful passion that makes its home in our hearts. But envy doesn't get in your face immediately the way something like anger might get in your face. Envy is something more subtle, something more sneaky, something that often lies hidden from view until it has built up considerably and bursts out in some destructive way. Envy. The verb in our text, envieth, means to burn with a fervent zeal or to be moved with an earnest desire for something. And this word is a word that can have either positive or negative connotations depending on its use, depending on its context. Fervent zeal, desire for something can be good or it can be bad. It depends on the object that one desires. It depends upon the purposes of the heart in desiring that object. It depends upon the methods that the zealous man employs in obtaining the object of his desire. There is a fervent zeal, an earnest desire that is holy and good. Consider, for example, the part of the second commandment which says, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. The Holy One is a jealous God. That doesn't mean that he is envious in a sinful sense. No, not at all. But what it means is he is a God who is zealous for what is good. His zeal for the good is part of his righteousness. And because he, as God, is the supreme good, part of his holiness is a devotion to his own glory. God is zealous for his own glory and honor, and he will not give that glory or honor to another. And that is good. It would be wrong, it would be sinful if God were not jealous. For his glory. For he is the good and the overflowing fountain of all good. There's an example of a certain holy jealousy. When our Savior cleansed the temple in Jerusalem, the words of the psalmist in Psalm 69, verse 9 were fulfilled. For the zeal of thine house hath Eaten me up. Zeal for the holiness of God's house. His house of prayer. Ate up our Lord Jesus Christ. It was a consuming zeal and desire. But it was a holy zeal and desire. And so we see this fervent desire. This ardent desire. This fervent zeal. Can be in harmony with love. Indeed. Zeal, rightly directed, is an expression of love. Remember our definition of love. Love is not a lukewarm thing. But love is an earnest desire and a committed pursuit of the true good of another person. There is zeal there. Love is zealous. It's not a lukewarm thing. Love that's lively and healthy, will be fervent and zealous. But now this word that we find in our text, translated envy, which really means burning with fervent zeal, this is a word that can have strongly negative connotations, and such is the case in our text. 
To burn with a fervent desire for something such that it creates a restlessness in you, such that it consumes you, such that it produces a hatred for others around you. That is what we call envy or jealousy in the bad sense. A biblical example of this is found in James 4 verse 2. Where James addresses one of the root causes of human conflict and infighting among the community of faith. And in James 4 verse 2 he says, Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have. And that word there in James 4 verse 2, desire to have, is the same word that we have in 1 Corinthians 13 4. Envy to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. And Galatians 5 verse 21 includes this sort of envy, this sort of sinfully misdirected zeal, includes it among the characteristics of the unsaved person. As one of the works of the flesh, which is diametrically opposed to the fruits of the Spirit. Envy. Envy. So now what precisely is this envy? This sinful form of zeal that the text is talking about? How can we define it? Well, envy, according to scripture, can be defined as a simmering resentment and ill will towards someone Because they have something you want. A simmering resentment and ill will towards another person because they have something you want. Envy is like covetousness, but envy has an extra dose of enmity in it. It's a a burning desire that inflames resentment against someone, even hatred towards your neighbor, because you see something that they have, whatever that may be, and you want it so bad that you start to despise them precisely because they have it and you do not. Envy is selfishness coming into contact with your neighbor's prosperity. Envy is grieved By the neighbor's prosperity. Envy is annoyed by the neighbor's success. Envy produces disdain for the neighbor. When the neighbor receives recognition or praise by other people. Envy finds the neighbor's flourishing to be frustrating and irritating. That's envy in action. And the outgrowth of envy then is ill will towards the neighbor. Ill will, the harboring of dark thoughts about that neighbor. A debased desire to see the neighbor suffer loss. When we envy someone, we start to dislike them. They may not have done anything to you, but you dislike them. Or their little offenses you refuse to put up with. You're not long-suffering towards them, but whenever they do something that rubs you wrong, you take it to the extreme. Envy is behind it. You think less of your neighbor. You see that thing he has and you wish you had it. And you'd love to see him lose it so that he doesn't have it. If you can't have it, you don't want 
him to have it. And should the neighbor lose that thing or suffer the loss of something you wish you had, you find a certain satisfaction in that. That's envy in action. And you see, envy is like a bed of coals that simmers in the heart. It simmers there. And often we find a twisted pleasure in nurturing and keeping those coals alive. And when we find ourselves in certain circumstances which gives a burst of oxygen upon those coals, the coals of envy quickly flare up and manifest themselves as the flame of murder, as the flame of theft, as the flame of slander, as the flame of all sorts of other sins. And that's the seriousness of envy simmers there inside of us and often can't be seen, noticed, until it bursts out in a destructive way. That's why Lord's Day 40 of the Catechism mentions envy as one of the roots of murder and warns us that God esteems envy itself to be murder. It is murder of the heart. And now, thinking through what envy is according to Scripture, we see Why the text says, love envieth not. Love, as the Bible defines it, and envy, according to scripture, are opposites. Complete opposites. Love desires the neighbor's good. Envy despises the neighbor's good. Love is a committed pursuit of the neighbor's good, an earnest desire to see the neighbor blessed, and a willingness to spend something of my own to do good to the neighbor. Envy views the neighbor's good and advantages as threatening to me. And that's a, that's a fearful thing about envy. Envy makes the neighbor's good a threat to me. A threat that I want removed. Love wants to bless. Envy wants harm. Love delights in the neighbor's advantage. Envy resents it. Love pursues the neighbor's good even at one's own expense. Envy pursues one's own good and desires even at the neighbor's expense. Envy is neither long-suffering nor kind. Envy is long-simmering, yes. And at the end of a long-simmer Burst out not in kindness, but often in maliciousness. That's envy. And so we do well to apply this concept. Paul, remember, is writing to the Corinthians to address problems very observable in the church in Corinth. And the problems that were in the church of Corinth, as we saw in the introductory sermon, are problems that continue to our day. They are problems not unique to one point in time in history. And Paul saw envy in the Corinthian church. And he calls those Corinthian Christians to take a good look at themselves and pray for the Lord's Spirit to work in their midst. That by the word, their envy may be mortified. And the text which comes to us tonight calls us to do the same. To take a good, hard, sustained, honest look at ourselves. As we sang in the the Psalter number right before the sermon. Search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Try my heart. Lead me in the way everlasting. Does envy find a home in your heart right now? 
Is envy showing itself in your life right now? Do you recognize it when it does? Remember what God said to Cain? Genesis 4 verse 7. After Cain was inflamed with resentment over God's acceptance of Abel's sacrifice. God warned Cain, sin lieth at the door. Sin is like a crouching lion waiting to pounce. And sin sits itself right at the door of your heart and life. Like that crouching lion. And it's waiting for the door of our hearts to be opened just a crack. And it will pounce. Envy is that sort of crouching, pouncing lion. It's at the door. And thus we must be on our guard. So easily it arises in the heart. It's the natural direction our sinful nature goes when we come into contact with the prosperity of our neighbor or something good that someone has that we want but do not have. Charity envieth not, but the sinful nature envies readily. And the subtlety, the sneakiness of envy makes it, easily, makes it easy for it to escape our notice. So that coals start to pile up in our hearts. And if we're not watchful, those coals simmer there. Grow. And coming into contact the right amount of oxygen in the right circumstances burst out. Hearts, because where envy, where envy finds a home, love waxes cold. God's word reveals many ways that envy manifests itself in our lives. Think about some of those now, perhaps. Why is it that, generally speaking, people find it hard or harder to get along with other people who are more prosperous than they are in a certain area? Why is it that there's a tendency for us to look at that person who is more well-to-do and say, wow, they're uppity? Why is it so easy for us to say about that guy who's a better basketball player? He's just a show-off, a bit of a jerk. Why is it so easy to look at that co-worker who is more skilled at the job than I am and say he's just such a know-it-all? Envy. Envy is so often behind that attitude That thinking, those words, and often we don't notice it. Often we think we're justified in saying and thinking those things. We're aggrieved. But when we stop and think about it, what are we aggrieved by? We're aggrieved by the good God has given to the neighbor. And we don't like it. That's envy. Or the time someone you know, a friend or a family member, gets something at a really good deal or even for free. Perhaps they get a steal of a deal on a house or on a car. Something you had to work really hard to obtain for yourself. And it just kind of irks you. He doesn't deserve that. 
He didn't even have to work for it. He didn't earn it. And we can tell ourselves we're, we're just interested in things being fair and square, but really what's going on there is the coals of envy are starting to flare up a little bit. Or we hear someone being praised or receiving recognition for something they did. And how easy is it for our first reaction to be to think or to say, yeah, but. Do you know about this other thing he did? Or do you know about this? Don't don't go too far. There's this... Quickness in our nature to try to poke holes in another person's character, actions, or reputation when we hear them praised because it bothers us that someone is talking so good about them. That's envy lurking there. There's a particular kind of gossip, too, that loves to pick apart the character or the actions of people who have something we want, or from an earthly standard have things better than we do, or have some gift that we would desire. A certain kind of gossip that gratifies itself in knocking that person down a few pegs. And that's envy. Envy is bothered by their success. Envy is bothered by the good that they have. And envy can feel better about itself when they're knocked down a few pegs. We could go on, could we not? But we sense that kind of thinking, that kind of reacting in ourselves, do we not? That's our sinful nature. And that's what this text does. It's showing us the ugly face of our sinful nature. we got to see that face so that we recognize it for what it is, so that we can put aside all of the kinds of justifications we can use for that thinking or that form of acting, and so that we can be aware of, of what's going on in our hearts when we think and talk this way. It's envy. That's what it is. And the text tells us, love envies not. Love envies not. In these situations, when we think or act or talk that way, we are not walking in the more excellent way. And there, that should be alarming to us. Let's not, let's not minimize these things. Well, that's just how we think. That's just how we act. It's not a big deal. No, the coals of envy are dangerous. We're going to get to that in a moment. They're contrary to love. And love is the sum of the whole will of God for us. God comes to us in his law and he says, My people, this is my will for you. This is how you are to live as redeemed people. Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And envy is a blocker to that love. Envy prevents that love from being expressed the way it should and in fact leads us to the opposite, to hatred, to anger, to malice, to wrath, and so many other things. And thus, as God's redeemed people, this word touches our hearts, does it not? Because by the power of the Spirit, we want to love God, we want to love our neighbor. Let's hear this word. 
identify wherever envy might have found its home in our hearts and lives and get to work ripping out that weed from the soil of our hearts so that the space it was occupying can be devoted to love and the fruits of the Spirit. But now, having looked at envy, having seen the face of our sinful nature and how prone we are to envy, it's important that we have a warning that's implied in the text concerning the deadliness of envy. Envy is a deadly thing. It's like a deadly disease. It grows, it spreads, it does damage to the person who harbors it and to the people who are around the one who harbors it. And so let's first look at the danger that envy poses and the damage it can do to the person who harbors it persistently in their hearts. It's like a deadly disease that spreads through the whole body and contaminates every area of life. And a Bible verse that highlights that idea for us is Proverbs 14, verse 30. Proverbs 14, verse 30. There we read, a sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. And that's a vivid picture, is it not? A sound heart is a healthy heart. A healthy heart pumps the life-sustaining blood throughout the whole body. A healthy heart often means a healthy body and a healthy life. Spiritually speaking, our heart is the center of our being. It's the center of our person. From it, Proverbs 4 says, flow the issues of life. Our thoughts, words, deeds, and actions. Thus, a spiritually healthy heart is one that is full of love for God and love for the neighbor so that that love flows out from the heart through that person's life and reaches others around them. Envy is the opposite. Envy is rottenness of the bones. A disease or a sickness of the soul that wastes away the whole body and kills it from the inside. When envy takes root, it drains away joy, it drains away peace, strength, vitality. It eats away at your life, physically, but especially spiritually. Rottenness in the bones. You think about what that would do to a person physically if their bones began rotting away. Their entire bodily frame would become dysfunctional to the point of being unusable. Someone whose leg bones have no strength and are rotting away is not only in intense pain, but will no longer be able to walk. Someone whose arm bones and finger bones are rotting away will not be able to do anything. That's what envy does to you. As it simmers inside, as it consumes you from within, it's like a disease that cripples. Where envy flourishes, you're no longer able to walk the more excellent way. That is harm. That is harm. Envy is a spiritual rot. It takes away our strength. 
And in that weakness, in that spiritual rot, instead what flows from the heart is a polluted stream of sinful thoughts, words, and deeds towards our neighbor. That's how envy manifests itself. Thoughts become dark and cynical. Emotions become restless. Words that are cutting quickly come. Deeds that are sinful quickly come. Anger, wrath, the rest. Think, think of Saul. What happened to Saul as he let envy simmer in his heart? Envy particularly against David. For Samuel 18, verse 8, Saul hears the songs being sung in Israel. The songs about David slaying his tens of thousands, but Saul his thousands. And Saul, the the verse says, eyed him, eyed David with an eye of envy. And that envy rotted Saul's bones. Saul had other sin problems, yes, but envy stands out among them until he becomes this brooding man plagued by an evil spirit of God sitting on his throne looking for a way to destroy David in envy that javelin flew at David as David is there playing his harp trying to comfort this inconsolable man who had envy in him and was rotting away his bones. That's, that's envy. That's the deadliness of envy. A form of envy that God's people are, are to beware of is envying the wicked. Psalm 37 verse 1 says, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. And Proverbs 3.31 says, Envy thou not the oppressor, and choose none of his ways. That's a danger when God's people throughout the ages have surveyed the world. So often they see unbelievers... Wicked and unjust men who from an earthly point of view are way more prosperous. They have so much more of the things of this earth. They rise to stations and positions of great influence and power all around. They seem to be better off than God's people. And the devil takes advantage there. The crouching lion of envy is right at the door. And when we crack that door open to it, envy pounces and pushes its way through. And that envy can lead God's people astray. Have I washed my hands in innocency? In vain, Asaph said. Maybe the ways of the oppressor are better ways. Maybe I'm going to choose some of his ways. Being a Christian doesn't do me much good. As envy simmers in the heart, it can lead the mind In that direction, down the paths of sin. Beware, beloved, of envy. It's spiritually detrimental. That's what Asaph confesses in Psalm 73, verses 2 and 3. He says, But as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. A major contributor to Asaph's own spiritual struggles was his envy. That envy was like a rottenness in his bones and it began eating away at his trust and dependence upon God. His belief in God's goodness, he began doubting, he began murmuring, he felt anger towards God because God seemed unfair and that envy ate away at him on the inside. As you know, going on in the psalm, 
God corrects him with his word and restores him. And Asaph comes to confess that his envy was foolishness. He went to the sanctuary and there he saw the end of the wicked. That their prosperity was not true prosperity but was only working their ruin. And that what he had esteemed as being without prosperity was mistaken because the Lord was his portion. As he says in verse 26, and if the Lord is your portion, you have everything. You have what is most important. You are above all people prosperous. Envy can give a person a very jaded outlook that leads to a breakdown of trust and acknowledgement of the goodness of God. Envy is spiritually dangerous. And thus, the warning to us, watch, pray, seek the grace of God to fight and uproot envy wherever it rears its ugly head. But now, in the second place, looking at the deadliness of envy, let's see the danger that envy poses to the people who are around an envious person and the damage that envy can do to other people. Another proverb that brings this out in a very striking way is Proverbs 27, verse 4. Proverbs 27, verse 4, Solomon asks a question which drives home the power of envy to harm those around you. Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous. But who is able to stand before envy? And you get the point that he's making. He's not downplaying the seriousness or the destructiveness of wrath and anger. But he's making the point that often wrath and anger quickly get in your face. But envy simmers there hidden in the heart until it builds up so much pressure that it explodes in a very vicious way. Envy's dangerous. Now to apply this particularly to our relationships, we must see that envy as a love blocker, envy is also a relationship breaker. Envy acts like an acid that dissolves the ties that bind friends, family members together. You can find lots of examples of this in the Bible. It happened in the very first family. We mentioned Cain earlier. What happened when Cain saw God accept Abel's offering? Verse 5 says, He was very wroth and his countenance fell. And what happened? Those coals of envy simmered in his heart until one day he was alone with Abel in the field. No one was around And who was able to stand before envy? Exploded. Cain slays his first brother, or his his brother Abel, and we have the very first murder perpetrated in the creation, and envy was at the root of it. Think of Jacob's family. What damage was done by envy among the twelve brothers? 
Jacob wrongly showed favoritism to Joseph, Rachel's son, gave Joseph that coat of many colors, so that we read in Genesis 37, verse 4, And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. There is envy, the love blocker, and the relationship breaker. And then as we go on in Genesis 37, Joseph has his dreams and he goes and tells his brothers about the dream he had of them bowing to him. A dream that pointed ahead to a time when Joseph would be elevated to a position of authority and power and prominence over his older brothers. And Genesis 37 verse 11 says, And his brethren envied him. Where does that envy lead? Children, What happens to Joseph? What do his brothers do to him? Father Jacob sends Joseph out to find his brothers as they're with the sheep in the countryside. And when his brothers see Joseph coming, oh, there's the dreamer. Let's kill him. And they decide on sparing his life, not out of mercy, but for their own advantage, they throw him in a pit. And then come the Midianite traders. And Judah has the great idea of selling his own brother to the Midianite traders, making some money and getting rid of this hated favorite son of Father Jacob all at the same time. And Stephen, the evangelist and deacon in Acts 7 verse 9, expounded this history for his Jewish listeners and said, the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. Love blocker, relationship breaker, envy is deadly. So what about us? What warning can we take away from this? Envy can kill our relationships from the inside out. Friendship. Someone we used to be very close to, but... Because God has led them down a different path and given them something that I desire, but he has withheld that from me, we grow distance, enmity develops between us, I start to think about them in a different way, start to dislike them. Envy drives that wedge between us. Envy can become the rottenness in the bones of a marriage. When a spouse looks out at other people's spouses and says, man, I wish my wife was like her, or I wish my husband had that quality of him, and we let that thought go on in our hearts, and a coal or coals of envy are ignited, and a certain resentment builds because my spouse isn't like that other person, and that envy eats away at my marriage and blocks the expression of love. Dangerous, deadly. Same thing can happen with families. We look at another family and how perfect they seem or what God has given them or this or that and my family is different and I envy that and it leads to dissatisfaction about my own family and the way God has led me in my family and even though I don't intend it, that dissatisfaction bursts out in ugly ways. I'm more quick to be angry with my children because I wish they were like somebody else's children. 
Envy can become a rottenness in the bones of a family. Or a feud starts in an extended family because the parent's estate has to be divided and there's disagreement and people want this, people want that. And instead of resolving their disagreements in the biblical way, envy gets the better of them and relationships get get strained or broken down sometimes over the most trivial of things. Envy is deadly. In the church... Enviness can inject rottenness into the bones of the church. That that was a warning Paul had for the Corinthians. Remember the party spirit that had emerged, which he addresses at the beginning of the book. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Contributing undoubtedly to that party spirit was a measure of envy. The trouble that the Corinthians were having over spiritual gifts, elevating the gift of tongues and other gifts very highly so that those who were in possession of those gifts thought highly of themselves and those who did not have those gifts coveted them and were envious towards those who had them. The Corinthians needed to be warned about envy because envy was being a love blocker and relationship breaker in their church. Envy can make a church dysfunctional. There's a gifted member in the church. I envy him or her. And instead of being thankful for the gift that God gave to the whole body through that member, I would rather have that member not here and the body deprived of that gift. When that thinking prevails... The body becomes dysfunctional. It's like the eye resenting the hand for being the hand that God made the hand to be. Envy would deprive the whole church of a gift unless I have it. It really comes down to a rebellion against the God who divides to every man severally as he wills. Thus, let us take that warning, too, to heart. Let not envy be an acid upon our relationships in the church of Christ. But rather, when we see that member who is differently gifted than I, or more gifted than I, or who has more of this than I, rather than envying, let us say, Thanks, Lord! For giving our spiritual family, this congregation, that person with those gifts, because that person is put here to serve the body. In fact, the Lord gives us those gifts through that other person. That's how the body works. God creates a hand. God creates an eye. God doesn't give the power of sight to the hand. But God gives the power of sight to the eye so that the eye may use its gifts to benefit the hand. That's how things ought to be in the family, in the church. Thankful for the gifts God gives to others because through others he is pleased to minister to me. And you see, envy goes against that. Envy says, no God, I want to be the hand and I want to be the eye and I want everything. Love says... Love enables the body of Christ to function. Love says, thank you, Lord, for what you've given me. 
Help me to use it in thy service and in the service of my neighbor. And thank you, Lord, for what you've given to that neighbor and that neighbor. Because that's a blessing to the body. And the body is benefited way more by having many different members with different gifts. That's better for us all than if I had everything. Thank you, Lord, for not giving me everything. Because that would not be good for me or for the church. We've looked at envy. We've looked at its deadliness. Now let's finish by seeing its remedy. We've seen that envy is like a a lion crouching at the door of our hearts, quickly pouncing. And the word of God that searches us shows us how easily envy arises and finds its home in our heart. How often envy cleaves to our thoughts and actions. And so this text humbles us, does it not? It humbles us, but it does not leave us in despair. Once again, remember 1 Corinthians 13 The portrait of love is ultimately the portrait of our perfectly loving Savior. And so even as we see our own insufficiency, we're pointed to the sufficiency of Christ. And there's the remedy. The remedy is Christ. The only remedy is deliverance through Jesus Christ. He is the great physician, the only one capable of addressing and healing the spiritual disease of envy. Our human striving by itself won't produce a remedy. Before we can change, we must be changed. And the only thing that can change us is the powerful love of God in Jesus Christ. Those simmering coals of envy, no water of our own devising is going to put them out. The only thing that can is the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ, the love of God displayed. God, who begrudged us no good thing. The love of God, which is so opposite to our natural inclination. We so quickly resent our neighbor for the good that he has God looked at us, there was nothing for him to envy. There was ample reason for him to punish us in wrath. And yet God did not withhold that which was most precious to him, but gave for our salvation his precious only begotten son to secure us the greatest good. We're familiar with 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, but think about this verse in connection with envy as we've we've thought about it tonight. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. There is the love of God, which is the absolute opposite of envy. There was not a particle of envy in the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gave his all to redeem envious people. He yielded himself into the murderous hands of those whose hearts were rotten with envy. 
so rotten with envy that even Pilate saw it. Matthew 27, verse 18, for he, Pilate, knew that for envy they had delivered him. Jesus submitted himself to all of envy's cruelty at the hands of sinners. He went to that cross. He suffered and he died for envious sinners. On that cross, he redeemed and forgave a thief who undoubtedly had lived his life in envy. He died there for you and me, for our sins. He paid for them all, earned for us pardon. God pardons them all. He died for the envious to redeem us from our envy, to put out those simmering coals in our hearts and instead replace them with a fiery love. That's what Christ has done. That's the remedy. Not only has he obtained for us the forgiveness of our sins and our envy, he has obtained for us the quickening spirit who renews us, who works that genuine change in us that we need, so that we are no longer slaves of envy. We are not bound to walk in envy, but by the power of the spirit, able to walk the more excellent way. Christ died for our sins, and we have died to sin in him. By that spirit, we are spiritually reborn. And with that spiritual rebirth, we're given a new, sound, healthy heart. From which flows the issues of new life and new love for God and the neighbor. Real love, patterned after God's love. Love that envieth not. So, beloved, that's who we are. We have the remedy. The great physician has administered it to us. His saving grace, wrought in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, has administered that remedy. Though we still have the old flesh that we war against, we are not enslaved to that old flesh any longer. We have the spirit, the spirit of love, who sheds abroad in our hearts the love of God. You're a delivered people. You're a redeemed people. And therefore, we are a people that must get serious about a changed life. Who must walk the more excellent way and love with a love that envieth not. When we love each other with that love, envy dies. In its place, contentment and thankfulness will characterize our lives. Restful satisfaction in what God has given me, regardless of what God has given to the neighbor. That's God's business. Thanks, Father, for what thou hast given to me. Thanks for the blessing thou dost give to thy people through what thou hast given to my brothers and sisters in the church. Contentment, thankfulness, love that is no longer grieved when, do, when God does good to another person. Love that is not threatened by the neighbor's prosperity. Love that is satisfied with one's own God-given portion and glad for the neighbor's portion and rejoices in the portion that I have because regardless of my earthly estate, the Lord is my portion 
him do I delight. Let that be the zeal that eats us up. Zeal for God's glory. Zeal for showing him our thanks. Zeal that is kindled by the comprehension of and the experience of the zealous love of Christ for me that saved a wretched sinner such as I am. And that zeal, let that zeal eat us up. To rejoice in God's goodness and his goodness to the neighbor. So that whenever we see another blessed, we say, that's a blessing to me too. That's love that envieth not. Amen. Father in heaven, strengthen us by this beautiful word in the scriptures to uproot envy wherever it is found in our lives. And instead to love one another as thou hast loved us. Grant that the fruits of contentment and thankfulness may blossom in our lives. And grant that this love may nurture us together as a congregation, as families, in all of our relationships. That we in this way may reflect the beautiful, zealous love that thou hast towards us. In Jesus' name we pray.